We are continuing this morning with our still um, fledgling series on Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up at verse 16 of chapter 1 and working all the way through to verse 16 of chapter 1. Uh, in other words, we're not going to get through a full verse this morning. And if that scares you, it should, because it means we may be in this book forever. Seriously, though, uh, thus far, we have engaged in an overview of the book, followed by a look at two sort of introductory passages, Romans 1, 1 to 7, and Romans 1, 8 to 15, uh, in which Paul is, in the main, just introducing himself and then introducing his message by saying some things about the nature and the character of that message. And thus far, the perspective we've adopted on the book of Romans is to see this as a kind of uh, missionary letter of introduction through which Paul hopes to enlist the support of the Roman church in his desire to continue the, the westward expansion of the gospel all the way to Spain. That's his goal. The verses before us this morning, Romans 1, 16 to 17, mark a transition point in the letter as we move from uh, important but still introductory matters to a kind of formal thesis statement that at least is this perspective of most of the reliable commentators I've come across as they analyze the contents of this letter, and it does seem to me to be the case as well. And in this thesis statement, several things are uh, sort of pronounced or announced or declared ahead of time, not all of which we will see this morning, and the substance of which will not be fully uh, teased out, really, until much later on in this letter. But Paul sort of lays it all out there in these two rather skinny summary sort of verses that nevertheless pack a very big punch. So all that is sort of right here in these two verses. And then after making these further pronouncements and declarations about the gospel, Paul will spend the next eight chapters going into great detail as to precisely what the gospel is. And along with that, what are some of the implications that flow from it. But right now, he's simply making some pretty strong, deeply meaningful, even if brief, declarations about the gospel. Now in verse 15, the verse right before this section, Paul finished that section by telling the Roman Christians that he was eager to come and preach the gospel to them. That is, Paul was eager to come and preach the gospel to people who had already heard it and had embraced it. To be sure, his intention was to preach to the unconverted too. That's always part of his his program, but Paul's understanding was that the gospel was not just the message that needed to be heard at the beginning of one's Christian life and experience. It was the thing that needed to be heard all along the way, since in the end, it's only through a deeper and deeper grasp and application of the gospel that any real and lasting Christian progress can be made. And so after talking about his eagerness to come and preach the gospel to the Roman believers, Paul follows that up in verse 16 with two reasons why he's eager. One is because he's not ashamed of the gospel message. Quite the opposite. He's 
He's proud of it. Now, why he even raises the issue of shame in the gospel, we'll see in a moment. But that's one reason for his eagerness. The other reason for his eagerness is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, which we'll also be unpacking a bit this morning. He then makes two statements about who this gospel is for, namely it is for all who will believe it, and then makes it clear that all means Jews and Gentiles both. Now we'll look at those things a little more closely in a couple of weeks, along with, I hope, the final declaration at the end of verse 17 in which we're told why or perhaps how the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That is, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made manifest. It's an, and that is a particularly loaded phrase that I hope we'll be able to make some good sense of during that time. Anyway, that's kind of the Google map that is most immediately in front of us. Before we continue any further, let's pray together. Father in heaven, please hear us now as we ask for your guidance in understanding the verses that are now before us. Help us to learn good things, helpful things, right things, things that help us to know you better to know ourselves and our hearts better, to know better how we might respond in faithfulness to this life with which we have been entrusted. Father, I ask you this morning to please speak through me, not because of me, but in spite of me, and because of your great love for your people. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 1, 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning, there's really just kind of two main things, but the first one is this, uh, is this curious opening phrase, um, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not embarrassed by the gospel. And the obvious question is, why does Paul talk about this? Why does he bring this up? Why does he introduce the subject of people being ashamed of the gospel at the beginning of this letter to the Roman church? And the first response is to say, we don't know for sure, because Paul doesn't tell us. But I think we can make some reasonable assumptions, given what we do know about him, and about this situation, and really about human nature in general. For starters, as one writer notes, it doesn't make much sense for Paul to talk about not being ashamed of the gospel unless, in fact, there is a real possibility of a real temptation for Paul to do so. It, wouldn't be, it would be unlikely for Paul to just speak here in merely hypothetical terms. And so one reason he talks about not being ashamed is likely because he's been tempted to do just that. But why? 
Well, I don't think any of us have to think very long or hard about why this might be the case, at least one reason why. I mean, who in this room can say that they've never been in a situation where they were ashamed or embarrassed to own up to the fact that they were a Christian? Be it ever so slightly, or perhaps even outrageously so. Who's never been in a situation where perhaps it's some big social occasion, perhaps related to your work, or where you're in the company of a group of people that you very much want to be a part of, some club, some organization, uh, some crowd, but you want to be accepted by them? You want to be in? You want to be an insider with this group? I mean, who doesn't want to be an insider? But who's never been in a situation like that? With people whose approval, rightly or wrongly, you crave or think that you need or have to have. And in the midst of that situation, there you are with that group of people whose approval you want whose acceptance you want, and something gets said. A question gets asked, and all of a sudden, you, you're put on the spot. All of a sudden, it's time to show your colors, to fly the flag, to, to show where your allegiances lie, and in the heat of the moment, you back off. Maybe, uh, maybe someone makes a disparaging comment about Christians, or the church, or the gospel, or fundamentalists, or the Bible. And everybody laughs, maybe adding a few additional comments of their own, and there you are adding your yes vote by your silence. By just going along with it, not speaking up, not offering another alternative, another perspective, I mean, that's the crazy part about it is you don't actually have to say anything. Sometimes the loudest speech is the one that doesn't involve words. But the ugly truth is this. Whatever the specific situation, the time came for you to fly the flag and you did it. Why? Because you're embarrassed. You're ashamed. You're afraid that if you own up to your identity, if you post your colors, if you have any hint about your beliefs, then it's going to result in these people having some kind of bad opinion about you. Somehow rejecting you and sending that signal in some way. Or worse, it might result in someone actually taking steps to harm you or undermine you or otherwise make your life difficult. So because of this approval we think we have to have, or this security that we think we have to be able to manage ourselves, because of all these things that we think we have to have to be alright, or to survive, or to be fulfilled, all those things that compete within our hearts for dependence that can really only rightly be bestowed on God Himself. But in our unbelief, in our idolatry, we want things that we're afraid will be denied us if we own up to who we really are. 
and what we really believe. And so we're afraid and embarrassed and ashamed of the gospel. Don't we all know that experience at some level? And can anyone here honestly say they've never been in that situation? And thankfully, the grace of the gospel is that there is forgiveness. The mercy of God is that Jesus died for people who sometimes don't even trust Him enough to admit that they know Him. To be sure, we can't forget the warning of Luke 9.26. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory. Right? Right? There's, there's a kind of being ashamed that any believer is capable of, like that evidenced by the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. There's also, as Luke shows, a kind of being ashamed that is not the momentary act of idolatry or fear or unbelief. It's more than just a weak moment, but is instead it's the clear pattern and evidence of a lifetime that is a demonstration, not of a heart that once belonged to Jesus and walked away, but rather of a heart that never belonged to the Lord Jesus and for whom the cost-benefit ratio of continuing the Christian charade eventually became too much. There's that kind of being ashamed. But for most of us here, I trust our momentary acts of fear and denial are just that. They're momentary. They're forgivable. And are accompanied by other occasions where we have not been ashamed. Where we have flown the flag and gladly. In other words, that's not the only thing that's characterized our life in our experience. And so unless the Apostle Paul was made of fundamentally different stuff than us, and he wasn't. And unless his heart was fundamentally different than our own, and it wasn't then I think we can know from our own experience at least one reason why Paul might have wrestled with this. And even more so do we know this when we think about the particular circumstances here. Uh, Paul is about to enter into the most powerful, the most sophisticated, the most intimidating culture of his day. He was about to go into circumstances where there would be an abundance of opportunities and temptations to be ashamed of the gospel. But there's another reason why Paul might have struggled with being ashamed of the gospel. And it's simply this. Because he had been shamed because of the gospel before. And he anticipated nothing less in the future. Please notice the change of word there. Uh, John Piper is very helpful on this. He makes the point that one of the reasons that Paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel is precisely because he had already and repeatedly been shamed by those who are enemies of the gospel. You see the difference? Being ashamed is an internal thing. It's something that arises from within us. It's a result of our wrong perceptions and our, our idolatries and our fears and our unbelief. But being shamed, that's an external thing. 
It's something that others try and bring upon us. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1. Listen, uh, ver, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is folly. It's folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly, right? Through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly. This message, he's saying this message sounds like foolishness to people. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I mean, imagine if you were sitting in the Corinthian congregation and Paul said that to you. He's saying, you're not very impressive people. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here's Paul talking about his experiences to and with and among the Corinthians. Talking about how his message was regarded as foolishness. But how did Paul know that? How did he know that his message was being seen in that way and regarded in that way? Obviously because he was no doubt told that. Repeatedly. And forcefully, on many, many occasions, people were mocking him. People were telling him that his message was crazy, that it wasn't true. It was a load of nonsense. And this is Piper's point, you see. He's saying that the gospel brought shame on Paul in that it made him a target for the shaming behavior of others who tried to belittle him, to undermine him. To make him feel small or stupid or hopelessly out of touch or unsophisticated. And you see, just as we know about times when we've been tempted internally to be ashamed of the gospel, don't we all know as well, can't we all relate, at least at some level, to having times when we've been the subject of not internal but external attempts at shaming us? Because of the gospel? Perhaps you've been faithful to, to uh, uh, show your allegiance or fly the flag with someone. To be true to your identity. To not be controlled by your fear and need for approval. Perhaps there's somebody in your life who knows you're a Christian. And their response has been to try and shame you. To talk to you about how ridiculous it is that you would believe that a man might rise from the dead. Or that we can believe for a moment that God has given us a revelation like the Bible that is reliable and true. Or to otherwise try and tie you up in knots. And they send the clear signal 
that they think you are a fool for believing the things you do. Have you not had that experience as well? That shaming behavior? Here's the more contemporary version of that. What's more likely to happen today is not so much that someone's going to tell you that what you believe is foolish or wrong. We don't say that much, that very much anymore. Instead, they will criticize and attack you and shame you because of the exclusivity of your belief and your message. One writer puts it this way. He says, now, now today, people are more likely to shame you, not because you think the gospel is true, but because you think the alternatives to the gospel aren't. They shame you not by telling you that you're wrong, but by telling you that you are arrogant for thinking that others are wrong. And for saying so. That's right, isn't it? That's where we live today. Arrogance seems to be one of the still agreed upon sins in our secular culture. Nobody wants to be accused of being arrogant. And sadly, that is the manner in which many outside the church attempt to shame and intimidate believers in our own day. So we understand this reality. We understand what it's like to be shamed because of the gospel. Paul was shamed because of the gospel. He has whole passages in his letters where he talks about what that looked like. And he gives examples of it. Nevertheless, even though Paul was shamed by the gospel, he was not ultimately ashamed of the gospel. In spite of his own internal weakness, in spite of external attempts at making Paul cave in and throw in the towel, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? He says it right here. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For or because. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, Paul's saying some important things here, and to get that, you've got to pay attention to the verbs, specifically a verb, to the word believes. Everyone who believes. You see, the tendency, I think, is for people to read this verse or hear this verse as if it said, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believed. Believed. Past tense. Or to put it another way, it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who got converted. Or gets converted. I think that's how we tend to read this or hear this. Now don't get me wrong. The gospel is that. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone that has been converted. Absolutely. And Paul would completely affirm that and does in other places. There's no question there. But the question is, as one writer helpfully asks, is that the point that Paul's making here. Because the word here for believes, that word is a Greek word that indicates ongoing action. 
It's not a past tense verb. It's talking about one who believes and is believing and goes on believing. That's the sense of the verb here. So again, while Paul would not for a moment deny that the gospel is the power of God that saves people, that is, that makes converts and ushers people into the kingdom, the point he seems to be making here is to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of those who are believing and are continuing in their belief. Now, there's potential for confusion here, so let me be clear. Paul is not, hear me when I say this, he is not linking salvation to continuing belief as if believing were some sort of meritorious work that we perform which ultimately results in our salvation. That is not his point. He's been quite clear on this subject in a number of places. Salvation is a function of the finished work of Christ on the cross for his people. That is the source and the ground of it as later chapters in this letter will make abundantly clear. But what Paul is saying is simply that the gospel is not, the, not only the thing that has saved you, right? It's also the thing that is saving you right now. And will be the thing that finishes the job and saves you in the end. He's saying that the fullness of the salvation that has been secured by Christ's work alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, the fullness of that and the power of that is something that is experienced not only by those who once believed, but also by those who are believing today. Let me give you a couple verses. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul talks in that verse about the fact that we have been saved through faith. Our salvation has been accomplished. It's been secured and made sure. There's another verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here Paul talks about the gospel by which the Corinthians were being saved. Saved, And by that reference, he's simply referring to the effects and the outworking and the implications of the gospel. He's talking about how as the Corinthians continued to embrace and understand and appropriate the truths of the gospel and apply the truths of the gospel to their own lives and hearts as they continued in repentance and faith, then they were in and through that process being saved. They were they were, uh, by the power of the gospel, being delivered from the present power and dominion of sin in their lives. They were being made more like Jesus through the ongoing work of the gospel. And there's one more verse, Romans 5, 9-10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, 
Shall we be saved? Shall we be saved by his life? With these verses, Paul talks about salvation in a future tense and seems to have in view here the time when at the final judgment we will be rescued, that is, saved from the wrath of God that will be unleashed in the judgment. And of course, our deliverance, our salvation, hear me on this, our deliverance, our salvation at that future point, okay, is tied to the security of Christ's finished work. Absolutely to that. But the fact remains, that final judgment, those events, that's a coming day. It hasn't arrived yet. It's something that hasn't happened. It's something that's going to happen, but it hasn't yet. But when it does happen, we will be saved and delivered. That's the language of Scripture. And declared not guilty and acquitted and free before the judgment of seed of Christ because of the finished work of Christ. Because we have been saved and were being saved. We will be. And so the point then is simply to say that there is a certainty in our salvation that is tied to Christ's finished work, and yet there are aspects and outworkings of that secured salvation that we experience every day as God works out His sanctification within us. And there's an aspect of it, an outworking of it, that we will not experience until the final judgment. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. All of those things are true. And they're all tied to the finished work of Christ. And so Paul's reference here is not introducing any kind of works element into our salvation, but is simply recognizing the truth that the fullness of our salvation, the full benefit of it is something that we are still watching unfold in our lives. And it is that reality, that deep truth, that Paul looks to as a motivation, as a reason for not being ashamed of the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, certainly for those who have believed, but here specifically he has in view those who are continuing to believe, who are experiencing the blessing and the power of that salvation right now, today. Every day as the gospel continues to have its way in our lives and in our hearts and roots out our sin and our idolatries and our unbelief and continues on toward that finished work of the Spirit that Paul promised in Philippians 1.6. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the thing that is saving me. It's the thing that's saving you, you Roman Christians. It's the power that I see at work that is transforming lives and bringing light out of darkness and hope where there was none before. And from the ashes of despair and defeat and destruction, I see God bringing forth beautiful, impossible, unbelievable things, restoring that which no one ever believed could have been restored, redeeming lost causes, doing what only God can do, and rendering speechless the wise and educated of this world. Paul is saying that he may be shamed by others, but he's not ultimately ashamed because there's too much evidence. There's too much proof in his own life and in the hearts of so many around him 
who are believing and continuing and who are showing the evidence of God's powerful salvation being worked out in countless ways. We'll have to hit the pause button there. Only sort of halfway through that. There's a lot more to be said about these two verses. I think that's a good start. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes of faith to see and value the ongoing work you're doing in our hearts as you flesh out the implications of this truth that has gripped us by which we have been saved. Father, let that and let our conviction and growing conviction about that Give us courage to not be ashamed of the gospel and to value you and what you are doing and the overwhelming abundant evidence of that all around us and all within us. Let that be more to us than the opinions of a million people and the approval of a million people. Let it give us courage to admit our loyalties to you and to, to say winsomely yes, wisely yes, but clearly we are not ashamed of the gospel. No matter how much the world might want to shame us, help us to, to not be ashamed. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll receive that at this time.